Welcome to That Feels Like Home, a new podcast by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, reaching you from Middlesex University in London. I'm Mana Baeza, and I'll be hosting this season to talk about the different meanings we attach to our homes, building new stories from our collections that connect to contemporary issues. We invite academics, creative practitioners and students to rethink the past through the lens of the present. I never saw a worse paper in my life. One of those sprawling, flamboyant patterns committing every artistic sin. It is dull enough to confuse the eye in following, pronounced enough to constantly irritate and provoke study, and when you follow the lame, uncertain curves for a little distance, they suddenly commit suicide, plunge off at outrageous angles, destroy themselves in unheard of contradictions. The colour is repellent, almost revolting, a smouldering, unclean yellow, strangely faded by the slow-turning sunlight. It is a dull yet lurid orange in some places, a sickly sulphur tint in others. No wonder the children hated it. I should hate it myself if I had to live in this room long. There comes John, and I must put this away. He hates to have me write a word. And that was an excerpt from The Yellow Wallpaper. This was a short story written in 1892 by Charlotte Perkins Gilman and published in the New England magazine in the US. This is a story that links to the topic of our podcast today, which is going to be looking at the relationship between our homes, mental health and gender but also from one particular aspect, which is wallpaper. Okay, so to all those who are interested in the history of home interiors, you may know that the museum is well known for its wallpaper. And for those who don't, well, here's a fact. We hold one of the finest collections of mass market wallpaper dating from the late 19th century to the mid 20th century. Today, we're looking at wallpaper and related domestic stuff from a slightly different angle, and this is in relation to the discomforts in the home. We have lots of wallpapers in the collection, and this will be our starting point to discuss the psychological and affective dimensions of domestic spaces. And with us today to unpick these issues are Nikki Lambert and Paula Chambers. So welcome, Nikki and Paula. Hi, thanks. Nice to be here. Thank you very much for having us. And let me introduce Nikki and Paula. Nikki is an associate professor at Middlesex University, where she is director of teaching and learning for mental health and social work. She is a specialist practitioner with the NMC and a senior fellow with the Higher Education Academy. She is also co-director of the Centre for Co-Production in Mental Health and Social Care, and she has teaching and research interests in women's health, physical and mental health, co-production, social media and health education. Paula is a practicing artist with a back catalogue of shows, including most recently Home Discomforts in 2018 at Dye House in Bradford. She is currently subject leader of finite sculpture at Leeds Art University, and she studied the MA in Feminist History, Theory and Criticism and Practice in the Visual Arts with Professor Griselda Pollock, which has had a profound and lasting impact in her academic thinking and practice. She is currently completing a practice-led PhD at Middlesex University with Alexandra Kokoli. Now, to go back to the yellow wallpaper, this tells the story of an unnamed woman who at the end of the 19th century has been effectively confined to a room in a seasonal home and she's suffering from depression. She undergoes a rescue, in inverted commas, that involves strict bed rest and she's been advised to do this by her doctor husband. As the story evolves, the reader witnesses the gradual emotional and intellectual deterioration of the main character. Many feminists have seen Gilman 
the author as a proto-feminist writer and also this story as an attack on the medical discourses that oppressed women in the 19th century, as is evidenced by the characters in post-enclosure in the home to treat that depression. And in this story, the wallpaper in the bedroom is the only source or visual stimulus for the character, but also it's the token of that oppressive domestic sphere. The protagonist becomes increasingly obsessed with a pattern. As the story progresses, she starts to notice a woman behind bars, nestled behind the wallpaper, trapped. So the wallpaper is this metaphor for her own confinement. And with this, I'd like to start looking at objects from the collection at Moda that are related. These are wallpaper designs and samples of the same period as the story, The Yellow Wallpaper. They exemplify the kind of wallpapers that you would have found in middle-class homes. They have floral and very stylized designs. And I've chosen some that are particularly in these tones of yellow and orange colors. So I wanted to start talking with both of you, Nikki and Paula, about these wallpapers and ask you, what do they evoke for you? I think when I look at them, um, because they're, they're small samples, you can be drawn to them. And then it's only when you think of them as actually encompassing you, like they do in the story, they completely surround this person. You suddenly feel very differently about them when you think about them at scale. And there's something about wallpapers. They're one of the things that I think really give people very strong emotions. You know, people hate wallpaper or they love them. Um, and when you notice one that you don't like, you, you, you really can't stop looking at it about how much you hate it. <laughs> but the thing, there's something around when you see something at scale, something that's very immersive, something that surrounds you, you can have quite a a strong response to it. The pictures that we're, we're looking at here, these are very strong yellow floral uh, wallpapers, remind me a lot of the 70s wallpapers I grew up with. And I'm a bit of a maximalist, so I actually don't mind them. But I also can remember being a little kid and laying in bed and looking at some of those big, complicated papers and, and letting them um, come in and out of focus as I was falling asleep. And I can well imagine... Um, this the experience of the heroine, I think we'll call her, in this story. How, mm-hmm. how she started to have an interaction with this wallpaper and how it came to change the way that she was thinking. Absolutely. I mean, I, I agree with Nikki that sort of visual shift that can occur um, when you start focusing on uh, one particular object or one particular pattern. The story is a little bit ambiguous in relation to, um, you know, the size of the room, the, the, the scale, how much of the furniture's in there. Um, you know, in my mind, when I read it, I imagine something quite specific. I imagined quite a high ceilinged room and that this wallpaper is all encompassing. I mean, I think these days you know looking at the wallpaper samples that we have in front of us here you know these beautifully painted floral motifs um, in quite realistic colors you know you would if you had that in your in your house um, in 2019 you would possibly only have it on one wall it would be a statement wall and yet I'm imagining that, that the room that you know that Charlotte Perkins Gilman's describes in the book it is on every room and and you know floor to ceiling at about you know 10 foot high um, and that must have been pretty overwhelming especially if there was a lot of furniture in the room as well you know we're looking at something in front of us here that does feel um quite naturalistic and from an art tutor perspective you know very well painted but at the time again i can see how that might have have taken on other kind of connotations at that point in history there is no kind of nostalgia for a rural idyll in the way that we think about it now Um, but i think the effect would be the same being trapped in a room that was wallpapered uh, with a very oppressive pattern um, and being in a, a state of mind that meant that you were perceiving things that may or may not be there you know possibly it didn't really matter what the wallpaper was 
although it makes for a very good story. Well, actually, and if we could sort of deepen in those issues of the haunting qualities of the wallpaper, it's described as being dull, having a lurid orange of these flamboyant forms, so it seems like there's, there's an important aspect to it. But I guess more generally, this is a commentary on the domestic space and, and how that's acting upon the character. So could you both just comment a bit on this quality of the haunting and how you, you understand it in terms of the text, but also maybe in terms of your own practice especially Paula you explore issues around the uncanny and domestic spaces yeah I mean I think haunting is a really sort of interesting concept on lots of different levels you know on a very physical level haunting implies ghosts but you know ghosts are always domestic ghosts don't loiter around in fields ghosts loiter about in houses you know I'm also very interested in poltergeist phenomena because poltergeist phenomena is an intrinsically domestic disruption you know poltergeist you know slam doors move tables smash plates those kind of things but haunting as a sort of metaphorical concept um, implies the overlapping of time things from the past or intrude in the present um, in a way that makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable which is what the uncanny is the uncanny is a a sensation that things aren't quite right when I'm talking about it to my students I use the example of you know what if you went home one day and all of your furniture was a third smaller than it had been when, when you left it would be the same but it would be different just the familiar made strange and there's something about that idea that domestic objects from the past sort of intrude into the present and remind us of things that happened in the past. And I think this is really important for feminism in particular, but also for women's sort of embodied and physical experiences, is that we remember that what we're experiencing now is not an isolated incident, that these things happened in the past. You know, like the character in the yellow wallpaper, what she experienced is not something that is specific to that time. I can remember the first time I read the yellow wallpaper. I was probably 17 or 18. And um, it's some, it's a story that stays with you. I think of all the billions of books I've read since then and all the things I've encountered. But I never forgot the yellow wallpaper. And I think a lot of that is to do with, you know, being haunted by an idea. And what I find really frightening about it is that loss of agency. And I think in the past, you know, women were writing about these sorts of things because they recognise them as an experience. And what I think is interesting in today's society is we have a name for her experience. You know, it's not unusual for women to experience postnatal depression, but what she's experiencing is coercive control. So there's a reason why it haunts the reader, because you're looking at an experience that's unnameable at the time. And I think in one level, she projects her fear onto the wallpaper. Instead of saying, my husband and my brother, both of whom, because they're men and because they're doctors, are controlling where I can go, they're basically imprisoning her. The dialogue she has, the way she has to express that is to actually look at a woman behind bars, because that's what she is, effectively. And I think the way that the book has this dialogue with wallpaper suddenly makes it something that we can all experience at the same time. So we're all slightly looking in an unfocused way at the situation. We're all focusing on the wallpaper and the wallpaper isn't the issue on one level. The issue is the fact that she's being victimised. Yeah, she's being immobilised, she's also being infantilised and, and I think this is this is something that we were also talking about, this infantilising of women. So is there something that you can sort of contribute in that sense of maybe making that link from the yellow wallpaper in the late 19th century to seeing this today and and how it's differently expressed or maybe similarly expressed? I think what I also really pick up thinking about the wallpaper itself is I look at the wallpaper and, and it's described as this kind of contaminative kind of yellow it gets on people and it's almost like the quality of the of the horribleness of the situation 
So every time I'm trying to think about what's happening to her, I'm being distracted and, and engaged by the materiality of this wallpaper. Mm-hmm. It seems to be linked with sort of poisonousness. Um, and even the way that the woman behind the paper is described as creeping, there's this um, n- lack of ability to stand up, this lack of ability to take up space, this lack of ability mm-hmm. to find a voice, which I find really interesting. And you were saying about infantilization, mm-hmm. and the things I think are really interesting that she says her husband talks to her in a baby voice constantly, and she puts away things like she puts away her writing. She doesn't want him to see it, and she knows that he'll be cross with her if, he does, if she sees it. So there's lots of things about how that space affects how she behaves and how she moves and how she talks and how she thinks. And I think that's something that your work really pulls on. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I work with um, a range of domestic objects and materials that have what I think about as the overlooked and undervalued qualities um, of material culture. You know, these are things that are sort of fairly... Um, trivial they were fairly low cost when they were first manufactured and as a consequence that they've been aligned to a femininity that has also been trivialized Um, and I'm sort of interested in that I'm interested in the way that objects can embody a kind of specific experience Um, and in the case of my sculptural practice you know embody a kind of femininity that has also been undervalued because I think in reality you know women don't feel inside the way that they have been presented or perceived to feel and we were talking earlier about um, sort of social media platforms like Instagram where girls are making funny pictures of themselves with rabbit ears or, or kitten noses or whatever you know that sort of urge to infantilize yourself and femininity and the way that that is I guess materialized through what I'm interested in you know through material culture of feminine domesticity I've just recently bought um, a few 1970s thermos flasks and I've bought them because they come in a range of really nice colors and um, are all identical so sort of sculpturally they look really good sort of lined up but these are things that people have thrown away I've bought them in secondhand shops very cheaply they are seen to have no sort of value um, and yet they're hugely practical the thermos flask when it was invented must have been revolutionary and yet these are things that have not been valued I think that also sort of aligns with this notion of infantilization you know this sort of trivialization of women's experience which I think is what we're talking about here as well in relation to the yellow wallpaper. Class seems to be also an important dimension of, of this and when you speak about tribalization is that also part of this and, and we often the the text of the yellow wallpaper has been read as being an example of middle class white sort of consciousness but I think maybe there's something to be explored a bit more in depth uh, about that both in terms of what the text does but also how do we think about other women's experiences across the class spectrum do you have some thoughts on how class affects this experience of a domestic and the way in which it's presented as well and valued or undervalued. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's something that um, until very recently has not really been written about, um, particularly from a feminist perspective. You know, there is has always been this kind of assumption that, that domesticity or the problem with the domestic sphere and women's relationship with the domestic is a white middle class, either US, British or Western European um, issue. But of course, the situation is, is radically different. That's only a very small percentage. You know, the women who wrote about this in the 19, late 1960s and 
and early 1970s. And I'm thinking about Anne Oakley and Betty Friedman and, and women like that were educated women. They'd been to university. They were coming from a very specific sort of point of view. But of course, the vast majority of women in the world experience this very differently. You know, and to own your own home or to not even own, but to be um, in possession of a space that, that is personally yours in some way or other that you have a sort of metaphorical ownership of and are able to to decorate or furnish uh, in in a way that you choose um, has been quite a radical gesture from my own personal experience um, my parents were pretty working class and they ended up in suburban north london and this was a huge move for them to own a home uh, and to be part of you know a sort of uh, aspirational lower middle class community and yet they didn't really fit in they weren't really part of that and I I think again I think about wallpaper and the manufacture of wallpaper and I'm wondering at what point wallpapering your home became something that working class British people at what point could they actually afford that I don't know at what point wallpaper became cheap enough that working class people could afford it and I wonder whether at that point suddenly middle class people you know wallpaper then oh no mustn't buy that there's a huge sort of difference in the way that domesticity has been marketed to us as classed but also what you would say with implications on on how femininity is also marketed yes absolutely because again i mean you know although diy is sort of presented as a sort of masculine occupation um and i don't know you know adverts for things like b and q sort of have that kind of underlying narrative to them and i think that class and gender are tied in a way that may not necessarily be a reality you know it may be that a woman is coming from a you know a very aspirational you know middle class um, family and yet if she goes to being cute to buy curtain rails somehow or other that is uh, seen as a sort of trivial and a waste of time and I don't know these two things are tied I think and, and I think it's to do with value um, in the same way that things that housework and you know care there's a implicit value to these things that women's activities women's interests women's labor women's spaces are less important than men's i think another thing when you think about the yellow wallpaper the reason that the story still echoes is that it does have some element of universality as well you know everybody um understands what it's like to be overlooked disempowered not heard and also to doubt your own senses. We've all been in those situations. And there is something, I think, that's articulated in this book through this metaphor that I, I don't think I've seen anywhere else done as well. And I think this really stands up after all this time. At this point, I wanted to know more about the personal connections that Paula and Nikki have to a sense of home to creating a sense of home, dismantling it, and how one might associate or disassociate this idea of home with the idea of the domestic. When I grew up, we moved around a lot. My dad started off as a cab driver and a lorry driver and then went into sort of middle management. So we moved up a little bit, not epically, but but a bit through the classes. And that was going up through the 80s. And that meant our home sort of really very much changed. And I think the way that my parents decorated their houses is not at all the way I choose to decorate mine. For me, when I've recreated a space that I could consider home, one, it's been very mobile. So I've lived in lots of different places. I've moved around a lot. So I don't have a one place. I don't have an attachment to a locality or a particular thing. But what I do have is um, a sense of my home being something which is very specific in terms of how I kind of regenerate. 
So as a nurse and as a teacher, as I'm quite a sociable person, I love loads of people. So I'm out a lot. But what I do need to do is actually draw a boundary sometimes. So for me, home is a space that is curated and created by me where I can uh, replenish myself. I can be at peace. I can be quiet. I can be still. Um, and actually, uh, I'm a little bit unrecognisable in my home space compared to the person I am when I'm lecturing or when I'm in a meeting. And one of the things that's quite strange, I think, about being a woman and being friendly-ish is that people make all these other assumptions about you that you're always on tap that you're always available that you are always there to greet someone at the door with a hot cup of cocoa and welcome them into the fireside and and I I have to really disappoint people sometimes because that's not that's not me one of the things I would say in terms of health and well-being for women is the home is often not a safe space so I think we can never make these assumptions about what other people's homes and private spaces are like you know you assume that what you experience is what everyone experiences and I think that's one one of the reasons I really like this collection is it shows you all the different ways that people live all the different choices that they make and that's another gift I think that you get from literature as well the ability to look through somebody else's eyes and it's such an important skill as a human being to be able to empathize and to be able to put yourself in different perspectives. I actually live in a fairly small uh, ground floor flat I live on my own um, like Nikki does Um, my son left home about six years ago now and since then um, my home has very much the space that I live in uh, has very much become a studio so you know I've got this flat it's got two bedrooms it's got a living room it's got a kitchen that's quite a lot of room for one woman on her own whereas I don't actually need to sort of wander around these rooms all I need to do is, is is sleep and eat and read and you know watch a bit of telly sometimes so all of the rest of the space can be used to make sculpture in to store stuff in you know these these objects that I was talking about um, that I collect that that then become sculpture in some form or another you know they have to sort of live somewhere um, before they turn into sculpture so, so they live in my you know in my flat and stuff accumulates I'm a very poor housekeeper um, and possibly intentionally so possibly as partly as a feminist protest you know I don't do any cleaning um, I don't do any cooking I'm not interested in, in any of that and and that's fine that's a, it's a choice I've made there is a consequence of that and, and that's partly to do with the way that femininity is is constructed but is also foisted upon women from a very early age but what that means is that this flat that I live in that is a space that I also work in is a space that has a very specific kind of aesthetic it's very cluttered I have a huge amount of quite sort of weird things it does mean that um, if people come round I'm slightly embarrassed about this space although I feel perfectly at home and, and very very comfortable being there on my own to then have that on view is uncomfortable for me um, and I think that's a sort of hangover from this idea um, that, that women need to sort of keep home um, and that is not what I do so there's a lot of ambiguity and ambivalence about being a, a feminist artist who intentionally wants to disrupt the sort of historical notion of of what home might be and what domesticity might mean for women and yet at the same time feeling a an ever-present need to fulfill other people's expectations. So thinking about expectations, we have these four postcards from our collection. We can almost read them alongside the yellow wallpaper story in the way they present a moralistic tale about how women should conduct themselves in their lives and in their homes in the early 20th century. They're from about 1910 and contain both images and text for a song that tell the story of the mother who, upon leaving her child at home, possibly to socialise one evening, comes back to the house to find out that the house has caught fire and her child has died. 
So certainly there is a lesson here about how as a mother and as a woman you should be in the home caring for your child and that being in the public sphere is to disregard these motherly duties as society prescribes. So I wanted to touch on this aspect with you, how these postcards crystallize certain codes of femininity and punish certain kinds of behaviour. I think what I've, I'm so taken with these postcards is, is they remind me of a story, one of those old kind of morality tales, Matilda who played with matches and was burned to death. And what I like as well is the lack of subtlety in this story. Yeah. It's genuinely just a horror story. Yeah. It's a domestic horror story in the same way that the yellow wallpaper is as well. Even more fascinatingly, these postcards have been selected by somebody and sent to somebody. One can only wonder what message they're supposed to give to the recipient. I hear you've been going out lately. Yeah. Let me put a stop to that. But as well, this idea that uh, the last postcard says, this is what society requires or this is what society does. Whereas in reality, it's not talking about society. It's talking about one woman's failing to do the one job, apparently, she's put on earth to do. And so that's quite an extraordinary... I mean, who would make such a thing? Who would choose such a thing? Who would send such a thing? It really is quite something. It also makes me think about the last time I was on a bus and some poor woman had a baby under one arm and the baby was crying and two people turned around and looked at her. It's this idea that somehow this policing of women's behaviour was blaming when they're somehow... Was the person supposed to be failing because their child moved or made a noise? It just connects up over... These are all from different time periods. We still have this expectation that... You know, on one hand, you should be a really great mom. You should you should be a great hostess. You should be running a fantastic home. You should be doing all these different things. Then, if somebody goes out, either to socialise as a human being or to work, that's a problem. Mm. Um, if they don't, it's because they lack ambition. And and you can't help but wonder where women are supposed to belong in this yeah. space. Are they supposed to be creating a domestic space, which is a, a beautiful thing for the family to have, or not? Or is that a trivial thing? And then they're described as not working women when clearly they're putting in at least a full day's shift in terms of cooking, cleaning, planning, organising. None of this stuff happens by accident. And when you look at all these kind of confused messages that women are getting still about what they're supposed to be doing, you go around in a circle and then you pick up something like the yellow wallpaper. And for me, it says, just stop. Stop doing these things. These are not reasonable expectations. And that's one of the things I really like about it. And one of the things I was saying that I love about your work is it's like a beacon, like someone else is thinking these things too. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, this comes back to this sort of notion, the sort of haunted notion of domesticity and of sort of feminist thinking around femininity as well. You know, interestingly, that these issues are still coming up. You know, the postcards that we have in front of us, you said, Anna, are from about 1910. You know, here we are in 2019, over 100 years later, uh, and we're still talking about the same things. And I think it's problematic that we're still talking about the same things that are possibly much more subtle, um, that are policing femininity so i think it's all part of this subtle undermining of women in relation to their their embodiment their sort of physical being in the world but also in behavior acceptable forms of behavior and this does come back to the way uh, that women inhabit the sort of domestic spaces um, that that may or may not be home um, and the way that they pick up what what Morel Lederman Ukela, an American artist from the 1970s, um, called Maintenance Acts. This idea that, you know, she wrote this fantastic thing where she described herself. She said, um, I am an artist, I am a wife, I am a mother, um, but not necessarily in that order. Um, And she then went on and said, from now on, I will continue to do these things, but I will present them as art. Um, So that's what she did. 
did. She cooked, she cleaned, she washed, um, but she she documented these things and, and she presented them as, as art practice, um, you know, as a way of, I guess, making more visible, you know, the labour of women, the physical labour of women, um, the emotional labour of women, um, you know, the maintaining that, that goes into to everyday life. The emotional labour and the caring role that's expected of women and that Paula was just referring to also links to the work that nurses do, Nikki. Could you talk about the gendered aspects of the nursing profession as this is often associated with the duty of care? Obviously, nursing has always been predominantly female. The way nursing is imagined is quite extraordinary. Um, I wouldn't advise anyone to Google nurse outfit on the internet. (laughs) But um, you soon see that it's almost like a microcosm of womanhood. So you have some people who are seen as the battle axe. You've got the Hattie Jakes. You've got the Babs Windsor, the the cutie sexy. Um, You've got um, this expectation of nurturing. But also um, a real fight over nurse education, suggesting that nurses are born, and that this is absolutely gendered discussion, that nurses are born to care so they don't need to be educated, they don't need degrees. And when you think of the complexity of, of nursing now, I, I can't describe it, it's managerial, it's very much often nurse-led units, you're doing a lot more technical work, and you would never get on a bridge that was designed by someone who thought they'd have a go at it. So why you would accept care from someone who was giving it a go because they felt they were naturally gifted is, is beyond me. Mm. But there is something around this idea about caring being all heart and no head, and that's not real. It's not a safe way of practising, but it's also a very bizarre idea. Another thing I do is co-production, which is making sure that the people who are receiving services are as involved in creating them as they are receiving them. And so one of the pieces of work that's very current at the moment is about sexual safety in inpatient settings, particularly, but also in community settings as well. So thinking about the fact that under the Mental Health Act, you can be confined to a space of not of your choosing when you haven't committed a crime. So you've not done anything wrong, but because you're seen as a risk to yourself or to somebody else, people can take you to a space that you don't want to go to and keep you there, which is kind of what's happening in the yellow wallpaper. The problem has been in the past is that in the same way that we haven't always kept domestic spaces safe professional spaces also have had problems so we've had issues with people being grabbed touched uh, hurt um, sexually exploited inside those settings and it's only even this decade that we've started to talk about more openly and it's only this year that we've actually started to bring together very clear guidance on how to manage these issues and make sure that they don't happen and when if by chance they do happen to make sure that we are giving people the best care and treatment possible what happens in health is a picture of what happens in society and i think it's quite a useful thing to think about in terms of how we create spaces to be safe that are supposed to be healing spaces in the same way that we look at domestic spaces and how they impact on people. Spaces that are safe makes me think also spaces of comfort. We've talked about discomfort mostly through the yellow wallpaper, but how do you have some thoughts on comfort in the domestic space? For me, to be comfortable in a space, in terms of um, a healing space, a place of recovery, I think you need some element of choice over it. You need to be able to have some element of control over it. Um, And it needs to have been designed with that purpose in mind. So a lot of the stock of the NHS is old Nightingale wards. And what I mean by Nightingale wards are big, tall, long corridors, um, lack of privacy and dignity sometimes. And it can be very hard for NHS trusts to keep upgrading their space in the same way that 
um, housing shortages and um, appropriate housing is an issue, particularly for people with um, less money. It's the same issue, I think, writ large for um, NHS trusts. A lot of the central London trusts are shrinking their footprint and selling off their their land for private ownership. And that's made the shape and space of inpatient provision different. So it's not just about making it comfortable, it's about how class and money and politics also influence what can be seen as a very intimate space. Thinking more widely about people's experience, women's experience of what we might think of as sort of home space. Um, On the train down to London, um, yesterday I was reading the essay Bell Hooks wrote called uh, Home Place, a Site of Resistance. Um, And she's talking about home from the perspective of black African-American, of a certain generation and how home whatever home constituted however small that was um, however sort of um, poor in inverted commas that might be um, that actually it was the only space where this particular generation of women could feel safe and could feel you know not necessarily physically safe um, but could feel sort of that they could be themselves that they weren't out there in the world being demeaned or degraded or being treated um, you know like inferior citizens there's an ambivalent isn't there around notions of home about safety and about comfort you know yes for some women this can be a space that that is about choice and and is about furnishing it in a way that 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 feels personal as an extension of self Um, and yet at the same time this space can also trap women you know trap women very physically um, but also trap women um, sort of psychologically in terms of they know you know what's expected of them I mean there's always that classic thing isn't there of women who are victims of domestic violence you know why didn't you just leave well the reason that they don't leave is because they are trapped psychologically in that space home can be many things simultaneously i think that's really interesting the way you're thinking about home not just as a physical space but being a psychological space and before you also spoke about the embodied experience of home so is there sort of more to be said about this embodied experience no absolutely I mean it's something that I'm really interested in you know in my sculptural practice and also um, in the writing that I'm doing for my PhD you know I'm really interested in the way that um, that women or femininity femininity I'm saying it's something quite specific that isn't necessarily about women it's about presenting as feminine in the world whatever that might be I've written um, about girls and their bedrooms you know I'm thinking about the kind of stuff that you encounter you know as a girl and that may be you you know that the particular bedspread that you have or the mirror or the chair or the wallpaper you know this kind of relationship um that that girls have with the, with material culture you know a very formative point in their lives i'm interested in the way that we inhabit space in the way that we make pathways around furniture that we position things in a way that makes them you know easy to hand you know the most obvious example being in the kitchen you know that sort of classic triangle between cooker fridge and and, and sink or whatever it is you know that's meant to make um cooking easier but i think the same kind of sort of physical relationships with the stuff of home are set up in every room you know i recently redecorated my bathroom and i realized that i've put i don't have a tiny little magnifying mirror for putting makeup on so every day when I go to work and I put makeup on in the morning I move the magnifying mirror to somewhere else and then I put it back again which seems ridiculous why didn't I not put it there in the first place but there's this kind of this sort of embodied relationship with people uh, and the stuff of home you know I always sit in the same place on my sofa even though it's big enough for me to sit somewhere else all of those kind of things I think form us as people but form us as women if you're a little girl somebody has just given me a whole set of 
child size washing machines which were toys you know the way that femininity is taught as well to little girls all the stuff you're saying about sound like the way that young girls experience is constructed is so interesting isn't it because you look at one of my colleagues who's a dad was saying he has a very active daughter and it's so much easier to buy sports gear for his son than for his daughter because even the soles of the trainers on girls this is not even the pinkness of it all but they're not really made to be athletic they're not really made to be football running around shoes Um, and there's something around as well about the pushing girls into this kind of pink hello kitty childlike less than position and then demeaning it so giving them the very specific ideas about this is a young girl's teen music this is what a girl's bedroom looks like this is what girls like and then saying and it's rubbish and it's less than it's not as good it's not tasteful it's not mature and then when somebody does reach for a kind of mature aesthetic saying that's no, not very feminine and it, it all is this feeling of being trapped all the time and just to end i asked nikki and paula for their thoughts on what they like to change going forward in relation to the wider theme of domesticity and the home as a psychological as well as a physical space and how this has shifted from the time of the yellow wallpaper well, we've gone a long way from the yellow wallpaper, haven't we? <laughs> but let's cycle back there. And so one of the things that I took away from the yellow wallpaper was the loss of voice for this woman. The fact that her sense of self was undermined, the sense that her sense of reality was undermined. She was very much gaslit. Um, and for me, what I would really like to see is a real change in, in the way that we hear women's voices. And we, I would love as well to ban the word shrill. No more shrill. <laughs> no more moaning, because only women ever seem to moan. Um, men seem to make valid complaints. So something around the language and the way that women's voices in their materiality are heard, but also in terms of what women are talking about being put more centre stage. So if you look at political debates, you often see uh, women's concerns one being labeled as women's concerns when they're ways of making human society more fit to be habited by people um but also in terms of if you're going more um um, into detail and focus thinking about health systems so when women as also bme communities black minority ethnic communities report pain they're under medicated when people come forward to talk about sexual assault they're often disbelieved and that is absolutely the essence of what makes the yellow wallpaper frightening and what makes this a very, very important time for people to be owning their power and saying, this is not acceptable. And I think we do keep seeing it. It keeps coming into the news and it keeps slipping out through our fingers again. And so what I would really love for the future to hold is for it to be a place where no matter what your body is, you are safe and to live there. Uh, Your creative expression is heard and your... A contribution to society whatever it is is valued accordingly and that's what i would like to see i'd like to see a more equality i think that would be that would make all the difference it make the difference to healthcare and it would make the difference to making you know society is a machine for living in and we create it every day i would like to see us create something that is beautiful that is just and that is fair and that always sounds really utopian and th- another thing is obviously Charlotte Perkins Gilpin's other book was about a female utopia. So if, you've, if you're loving the, the yellow wallpaper, get on to Herland, which is also fantastic, and all those other things that like it. Because they, you know, people before us have had these thoughts. We're not on our own. And people in the future will hopefully move us forward as well. I agree with, you know, Nikki implicitly there. Um, you know, from, a, from the perspective of an, of an artist, feminist artist, uh, and an arts educator, you know, 
I would also like to see, you know, more parity with the numbers of students um, that we have coming through, um, you know, at present on, on a fine art course or in, in, on arts courses uh, generally, there is possibly a sort of 70 to 80 percent uh, female students. But out in the world, out in, uh, you know, exhibiting galleries, the, the kind of money that artworks are being sold for, you know, that. The difference is is huge. It's possibly only thirty percent women uh, to seventy percent men. Um, so that the, the statistics sort of shift um, once um, these young women uh, sort of leave institutions, um, and that could be for a whole number of reasons. Um, but I still think that 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 needs to be addressed. I also think that the way we engage needs to have more of a, a feminist focus to it. And I think again, this touches on what you were saying, Nikki. You know, I think we need to we need to change the model of interaction you know change the way that we are in the world not you know not women not just women not just about femininity you know everybody and I think that does come partly from stopping seeing actually you know care is about uh, is, is a woman's issue uh, you know mental health is, is is about you know women deal with this you know domesticity you know care children in the home this is something you know all of these things I think are, are really intrinsic to society in a wider kind of way and we need to stop looking at these as just things about women but oddly the only people that are talking about this and and are going you know hang on a minute look look are women you know and this is something that I find in my in my sculptural practice you know I'm using the stuff of home um, to make a a much wider point about the way that um, women are in their domestic spaces and what that might mean you know is that about safety is that about danger is that about violence is that about self-protection but this is something that is not just current you know it's historical as well but in a way it would be nice for that not to be the case in 20, 30 years' time, you know, it would be fantastic if they're, I mean, again, it's a bit utopian and far-fetched, but, that you know, that there suddenly there was no domestic violence in 30 years' time. Women were not being killed by their intimate partners. Um, you know, there are all these kind of things. And that that wasn't seen as a women's issue, um, that that was just an issue. So, yeah, I echo Nikki on a lot of these things. Uh, just the shift on art. <laughs> Let's keep up. The fight. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Thank you very much, both Nikki and Paula, for joining us in this conversation. And I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's been quite a journey from talking about the yellow wallpaper and domestic space in the 19th century to thinking about very pertinent issues of gender and our homes today. It just goes to show how modest collections can take us in very fruitful directions. That Feels Like Home is produced by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, MODA, recorded at Middlesex University. In other episodes, we will continue talking about contemporary issues that emerge from MODA's collections, from the gentrification of London suburbs to the relationship between our homes, everyday things and memory. You can listen to these podcasts and download transcripts at our website, moda.mdx.ac.uk, and you can follow MODA on Instagram and Twitter at MODA Museum and on Facebook at Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture. You can listen to these podcasts from your preferred listening platform, and we ask you to subscribe if you like our podcasts. To learn more about what you heard today, please visit our website, and if you'd like to see an object in person, book an appointment with us by emailing moda at mdx.ac.uk. I'm Ana Baeza, and I'll be back with more quirky stories, but for now, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.